Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the Old Testament prophet Haggai. Haggai today reading in chapter 2 beginning in verse 10 and we'll be reading to the end of the chapter in verse 23. As you're turning there to Haggai, I want to take a moment just to point out uh, that we have two very special visitors with us this morning. Uh, Pastor Jerry McGuire and his wife Marg are with us, and though many of you know them, uh, perhaps many of you also do not know them, Pastor Jerry served as the senior pastor here at Redeemer for nine years, uh, from 2007, beginning of 2007 to the end of 2015. Uh, and it's a joy to see them as they head toward a, a bit of vacation. I, I know what you may be thinking. Uh, Pastor, uh, when we read James, he tells us not to pay attention to those honorable people who come into your assembly. So why are you pointing out the Maguires? Well, aside from our uh, love and affinity for the Maguires, I want you to know also that I and my family will have our final vacation for the year. This coming weekend, we will be away. And as the Maguires make their way back toward Maryland, Pastor Jerry will be here next week in my place, uh, opening God's word for us and ministering again to us. And we're thankful for your ministry and looking forward to it. Uh, but today we are in Haggai, finishing our studies through these Old Testament minor prophets. We haven't touched on all of them, but that means we can come back later. Uh, in two weeks, Lord willing, uh, when I come back, we will begin a study in the New Testament letters to the Thessalonians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and so over the next few weeks, if you'd like to do some pre-reading, you can begin studying those letters, and uh, we will likely be spending a considerable time uh, with Paul and the Thessalonians uh, over the coming months. Today, Haggai chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 10, and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 23. Before we read this word together, let us go to the Lord and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have promised that your word never returns to you, to you void, but you always accomplish with it exactly what you intend. And so, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish in our lives that which you purpose. We pray that as we open your word, you also would give your spirit so that our hearts would be quickened, uh, so that our minds would be opened, so that our hands would be moved. Lord, make us those who trust in you and walk with you and love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Would you do this work among us as we read and study today, we pray. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Haggai chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 10. On the 21st, 24th, excuse me, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. 
with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider. From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you, and all the products of your toil with blight, and with mildew, and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, you have uh, you've seen the headlines already. I imagine just last week as Sunday morning was dawning over the Cree Nation Reservation in Saskatchewan, Canada, Two brothers, armed with knives, began a violent rampage. Ten dead, 19 more injured. Seems that many of the victims were seemingly attacked at random. It was another one of these senseless tragedies, the likes of which we have become all too familiar with. Perhaps because of that familiarity, we also know what comes next after stories like these. Now that the suspects have been found, and especially since the suspects are themselves dead, there will be no trial. There will be no opportunity for justice in this life. There will be no evidence examined in court, and instead there will be speculation. There will be an empty void into which all of the pundits and the special interest advocates from all sides of the aisle will speak. Because you know how these things play out, you probably already know some of the arguments that they're going to make. On the one hand, the advocates of criminal reform will point to the violent history. The long string of a previous arrest that should have kept these brothers where they could not harm the public. On the other hand, the advocates of mental health reform will point out that if there was only greater access to psychiatric services, these brothers never would have been a threat in the first place. The defenders of the Second Amendment here in America will point, this, uh, point to this story as an example of why every citizen needs the right to defend themselves. And among groups concerned with social justice, there will be discussion of the unique challenges of growing up on a reservation. 
There'll be increased calls for education and employment and other opportunities to give a future that's worth pursuing to brothers like these from families like these. The reason I bring up all of these arguments is not to make a political argument myself, but merely to point out that which you already know. That there is no tragedy so complex, so large, that it cannot be politicized to win points for public support. In other words, humanity has yet to encounter a complex problem that makes us stop looking for simple solutions. That's what all of those arguments and those uh, political volleys back and forth amount to. Simple solutions to complex problems. They, uh, they'll tell us, well, we'll vote for this candidate. Enact this legislation or get rid of that legislation and support this cause and all of your problems will evaporate. Simple solutions to complex problems. And we all love the idea that there is just some external bandage we can apply to make our deepest wounds disappear. The Bible tells us it's not that simple. What's the real problem at play here? The Bible says that out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and on and on. When Jesus made that statement, he was responding to a complaint about hand-washing, a controversy over tradition and, and ritual and ceremonial cleanliness. And the truth is that even when it comes to our approach to God, some people never tire of looking for simple external solutions to deep-seated internal problems. Now maybe if we can find the right church to attend, the right preacher to listen to, maybe if we can learn the right words of the right prayers to pray, or maybe if we can learn to act like godly people, we can learn to speak like godly people. Maybe if we give enough to the right Christian causes and ministries, well then maybe we can be acceptable in God's sight. But Jesus was saying that the problem runs deeper than that. Therefore the solution has to run deeper as well. In a different context, Haggai too is making the same point. The problem of humanity does not rest on the surface. And so the solution for our uncleanness must come from the inside out. Our passage today breaks down pretty cleanly into three major sections. We're going to approach those sections with three points and only partly in honor of Jerry Maguire. I've managed to get them all to start with the same letter. So in verses 10 to 14, we'll find that those verses are concerned with contamination. In verses 15 to 19, they're about covenant, and then verses 20 to 23 are about God's choice. Contamination, covenant, choice. Now in the first four verses of our text, the Lord sends his prophet to the priests with a question about purity. He says, uh, what are we to think of something that has been touched by something that has been touched by something that is holy. You follow, it's a question of, of a third degree consecration. Verse 12, ask 
the priests. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and he touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? In the Mosaic Law, the, the, the word of the Lord told them that there were certain portions of certain sacrifices that were considered holy, consecrated, and, and set apart for a special use. And among those certain portions of certain sacrifices, anything that touched those sacrifices also became holy, and in a sense, consecrated by contact. So pots and bowls and utensils and garments and other things that came into contact uh, with these, uh, these special offerings also became ritually special through association, but there the spread of holiness stopped. Cleanness or, or holiness in that sense wasn't like the King Midas touch that just kept on going and going and going. And actually, this is, uh, this is not a question that Haggai is asking to get information. This is what everybody knew already. This is basic principle of holiness and, and uncleanness, that holiness only spreads so far by contact. Impurity, on the other hand, that's another matter. Verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the answer is absolutely it does. Again, it's a, a third-degree touch here, a third-degree contamination. There's the unclean thing, that's the rotting corpse, and then there's the person who has touched the unclean thing, and then there is anyone or anything that that unclean person also touches. In the Jewish system, all these things, these, these external third and fourth and fifth order touchings or, or these contacts, it, it also becomes ritually unclean and unable, unfit to enter the presence of the Lord in the temple. And so uncleanness, unlike holiness, was transmissible over and over and over and over again. It's worth pointing out uh, that, uh, that matters of holiness and impurity in Israel were not about germs, bacteria. Th there is some overlap uh, sometimes between things that were ceremonially unclean and things that were unhealthy, like touching dead bodies, or leprosy, those sorts of things. But generally the point was not just to guard against some uh, sort of pre-scientific germ theory, the point was to make God's people different from the nations around them. The point was to encourage them to think seriously about the worship of the living God and to take seriously how they came into his presence. So it's not about germs and bacteria, but actually if we apply the same sort of logic that we use for germs and bacteria, we can understand the debate that's going on. Let's say that you're in your kitchen and you're breaking down a whole raw chicken to cook for dinner. In my household, that's typically my job because it's gross. Right? You, you have to get your hands in there. You've got to dig out the giblets, and you've got to pick off the little pin feathers that the processor has missed, and by the time you're done, your hands are smeared in chicken grease and that pink juice that runs all over the countertop. 
Well, let's say you finish with a chicken and afterward you go to wash up, but you decide to conduct a scientifically controlled experiment. So instead of washing both hands, you wash only one. You probably need some help, somebody else in the household to come and help you do that, but you wash very thoroughly. You imagine that you've got a, a walk-on appearance on Gray's Anatomy and you do the surgeon thing like you're scrubbing into surgery. Then you get the antimicrobial soap up to your elbow and you get the bristles under your fingernails and afterward you dry with a freshly washed towel, and when you're done, you are left with one sanitized hand and one chicken juice hand. Now, the debate that's going on here in Haggai, though it seems pretty obscure, is what do you think happens if you take those two hands and you put them together? Do they both become clean, or do they both become dirty? Now, that's the spiritual point that God is making. Look at verse 14. And Haggai answered the priest, and he said, So it is with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. There is a problem of contamination. The people are unclean, and their hands are unclean, and everything they do and everything they touch is contaminated by their sin. As far as the word of the Lord. But we want to know, why is it that at this point, the Lord is giving his people this message? On the whole, up to now, Haggai's been a pretty encouraging prophet, especially when you consider to compare it to Nahum and some of the other minor prophets we've been reading recently. Consider the circumstance. Later in this passage, we find that this date, the 24th day of the ninth month, this date marks the day when the foundation of the temple was finished. It had been three months to the day since the people began working on the temple. And now there's good work being done, and they're beginning to see progress. And shouldn't this be a day for rejoicing, we wonder? Shouldn't the Lord have sent this prophet to proclaim something a bit more uplifting, a bit more encouraging? Why, of all times, is the Lord sending this of all messages? Why an expose of their spiritual state on a day that should be a celebration? Well, because the Lord knows how forgetful we are. Think about it. God had been gracious to his people. Chapter 1 says that it was the Lord who had stirred up their hearts to listen to the prophet and to come and to engage in the work of the Lord. He strengthened their hands for the work and he called them to accomplish it. And now the temple is taking shape before their very eyes. But despite their strong hands and their stirred up spirits, the Lord knows that his people are prone to spiritual relapse. He knows that the heart of man is bent toward trusting outward blessings rather than the one who gives them. And the Lord knows that unless his people are engaged in the deep heart work of real and ongoing repentance and faith, they will construct the temple that the Lord has demanded, and then they will treat that temple as the guarantee that they are acceptable in God's sight. Can't you see what we've done together? What the Lord has allowed us to accomplish, surely everything is right with our souls, a simple external solution to a very deep-seated problem. It had happened before in the history of God's people. Do you remember in the days of Samuel, 
Right? When, uh, when among the priests, among the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, there was this great evil that was being overlooked and nobody was doing anything about it. And as a judgment, the people fell in battle against the Philistines. What did they do? Rather than examine this sin that they were winking at and overlooking, they simply uh, grabbed an outward blessing. They took the Ark of the Lord and they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. They treated God's outward blessings like a, a sort of lucky rabbit's foot. But we can't lose. We've got the Ark of the Lord now, don't we? Jeremiah addressed the same kind of thing before the exile. Jeremiah chapter 7. He said, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah went on. He said, you trust in these deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. In other words, the people full of sin imagined that merely their outward connection to the holiness of God's temple made everything okay, like a band-aid applied to a cancer of the bones. And here in this very moment in Haggai, at the completion of the foundation of the rebuilt temple, the Lord knows that his people are prone to relapse and they are prone to spiritual presumption. He knows they're tempted to think that because of their connection with God's outward blessings that everything must be okay with their souls. And the Lord is not willing to let them live under that delusion, so he tells them the real score. He says, you put an unclean people in contact with a holy temple and guess which direction the contamination is going to flow. You know, the truth is that even centuries, continents removed from Haggai, there are still outwardly oriented gifts, good things that God gives his people that we are sometimes tempted to trust in rather than the God who gives good gifts to his children. We're always tempted to look for a, a simple external solution. Baptism. Baptism is a gift of God. It is an outward sign of an inward work. The Lord's Supper is a gift of God. It's meant to show us Christ's death. It's meant to raise our hopes of what he will do among us. And there are others. Christian worship is a gift of God. Church attendance and daily devotions and works of charity and scripture memorization and catechizing your children, all good things, all gifts of the Lord, but merely taken as external remedies, they will never deal with the inward contamination that stains everything we touch. We have a prayer of confession that we use every so often here at Redeemer, and we pray together with the Valley of Vision, and we say, I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. And that's the idea. That's how serious it is. So here, even at this moment of celebration, not to crush his children, but to protect them from their own uncleanness, the Lord is warning his people of the deep contamination of their sin. And then he goes on, beginning in verse 15, to remind them of, 
the blessings of his covenant. Verses 15 to 19 blessings of God's covenant. Now, it's vitally important as we look at these uh, verses to understand this section as showing us God's covenantal dealings with his people. We have to see it that way. We need to see it that way. And we need to see it that way for at least two reasons. First, because it's simply what it is. Now, this should be familiar to most of you Uh, By now, at the end of our study through the Minor Prophets, you realize, hopefully by now, that the prophets are like jazz musicians. Right? And, And sometimes it sounds like they're just making things up. They're always improvising. They're coming up with new licks and riffs. But underneath of all of that, there is a very carefully constructed framework that undergirds every note that they're playing. And in the prophets, the undergirding framework is God's covenantal dealings with his people. It's everywhere. You cannot get away from it. And so verse 17, the Lord says, I struck you with all the products of your toy, with blight and with mildew, with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. When God says that, you know what he's doing. He is executing the conditions of his covenant. The Lord brought the the people into the land and he gave them blessings and curses. Stipulations and guarantees. He called them to walk differently than the nations. He promised to use every resource at his disposal to make sure that they did not forsake the Lord their God. And so in verse 17 and verse 19, you can hear it. Maybe in the background, in the rhythm section, you can hear that, uh, that sound of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and God's covenant dealings with his people all over again. So we need to see this as... Is God's covenant, because that's simply what it is. The second reason we need to see these verses as God's covenant dealings is that only God's covenant can give hope to unclean people. Think about it. God has just told these people living in Jerusalem that they cannot touch anything without leaving their smeary, sin-stained fingerprints all over it. Every stone they've ever laid, every sacrifice they've ever offered, every work they have ever been able to do. Imagine being tasked with counting to a hundred, but the only integers you have to work with are all negative. Right? Isaiah says that even all our righteous works are so many filthy rags, and that's true. It's true unless the Lord is pleased to do something better, and to make something better out of them. Take a look at the text. Notice the comparison that the Lord is making between what came before and what will be after. In verse 18 is the dividing line between the two. 15 to 17, before that day, before the 24th day of the ninth month, before the foundation was laid, what was the experience of the people in the land? He says, how did you fare? The experience was frustration always coming up short in the things that they thought they ought to have, always looking for abundance and running shy on on their necessities. And the Lord tells them where all of that came from. He says he struck them. It was his doing. He struck them, but he struck them for a purpose. Verse 17, so that they might turn to him. But they didn't. And then, verse 
18, now he says things will be different. Now that the work has begun, he says from this day onward, consider. He says, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Now, what does he mean? Well, he means by that, have you already collected next year's harvest? This word comes to Israel in mid-December, December 18th in the year 520 uh, B.C. That means that this is after the early rains in the month of October, and after the seed would have been sown on the surface of the fields and plowed underneath, and now through the months of winter and the rains and maybe a little bit of snow in Israel, the people are waiting, waiting for the promised harvest that they hope will come. They have buried their seed in the field. They have put out their hopes. They have kept nothing in reserve. Their storehouses are empty because of how lean things have been up till now. They are facing the prospect of a very long, very hungry season if the Lord does not provide. So verse 19, God says, is the seed yet in the barn? And the answer is no. No, it is not. In fact, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But, says the Lord, from this day on, I will bless you. Do you see it? Do you see God's grace accomplishing what sinful hands never could accomplish? This is covenant language all over again. So the prophet speaks of striking and of blessing. He speaks of mildew and of blight and of hail. He speaks of God's promises for an abundant future. And it all hinges on that spiritual element in the middle, turning the hearts of God's people to himself. You notice, don't you, that in the second half, that's the one piece that's missing, isn't it? The prophet hasn't forgotten it. He's left it out for emphasis so that you would supply it to complete the thought. He's waiting for you to connect the dots as you hear God's word to his people. From now on, God will bless his people. But why? On what basis? Well, because they have turned to him. That's the outward work that could be seen, right? All of this construction on the temple. That was the outward blessing that was evident to the community. In fact, it was even evident to the unbelieving community around Israel who did not like what the Jews were getting up to. There was this outward action being accomplished, but it was all the result of an inward work of God among his people. Remember what chapter 1, verse 14 told us. Why are they working or listening to the prophet in the first place? It says, because God stirred up their spirits. Because he's working grace below the surface, because he's stirring them up to seek him. And now, both their obedience and the blessings that come with it are the result of God's covenantal grace among his people. It all comes from him. The command and the obedience and the blessing that follows. This is covenantal language. Now, of all the attempts to define the concept of God's covenant with humanity, I think the best one for your money can be found in the children's catechism. There are longer definitions. There are more precise definitions, but the children's catechism well, it gets it pretty good. It says that a covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. 
That's the heart of the matter. A covenant is a relationship. It is a bond, an agreement between two parties, and they are united in this, uh, this relationship. And so on the one hand, you have the holy creator of the entire universe, and on the other hand, you have sinners dressed in our rags, and yet somehow through covenant there is union, there is fellowship, there is communion between the two parties. But how? Where does it come from? How can we become partakers of God's friendship when everything we do is stained with sin. The children's catechism tells us that a covenant is a relationship that God establishes, that God guarantees. He's the one who makes the commitment to his people, and he's the one who fulfills in them all that he requires for blessing. You can find examples of this in all the great covenantal texts of the scripture. Exodus chapter 19, here are the people now at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're probably tired, and they're probably footsore, but they're probably also beginning to feel like they've really accomplished something to make it this far. What does the Lord say to them? He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Why are we here? Because a covenant is a relationship that God establishes and guarantees. You can find it in Deuteronomy, a little bit later in the history, outside the promised land. And here are the people on the verge of displacing other nations and taking possession of this land of promise. And the Lord says to them, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but... It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why does God love his people? Because he chooses to love them. What does it mean? Well, it means that the relationship is wonderfully lopsided. It means that God's covenant with his people is always God-initiated and God-maintained. It is God who does the work, and it is God who does the credit. And wonder of wonders, it is the covenant people who receive the blessings. So the Lord says, from this day on, when the work he stirred up within them to accomplish is being done, he will bless them. Actually, the New Testament tells us Very similar things about God's covenant established with his people in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, says Paul. It is the gift of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It means the relationship is wonderfully lopsided. It means, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, that we love because he first loved us. And so on the one hand, in Haggai, we see our contaminated hearts. On the other hand, we see God's covenantal blessings. Finally, in verses 20 to 23, we see the choice of the Lord. 
Well, verse 20 tells us that the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. It came on the same day. The same day the foundation was being finished. It came on the same day that the Lord had exposed his people's inability to bring about their own abundant future. It came at the close of God's blessing for the entire remnant of his people. And when the word of the Lord came a second time on that day, it came in a way that made God's message even more specific. Speak, says the Lord, to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. It's a message intended for one man, the leader of this community here in Jerusalem. We've seen Zerubbabel several times already in Haggai, but I haven't had a lot to say about him because up until now there wasn't really a whole lot to say. He's relatively unknown, except for what we find here, what we find in Ezra, and then in a few genealogical references. His name, Zerubbabel, means the seed of Babylon. It means that most likely he was born in the exile, that up until he came back with those settlers in the promised land, he had never set foot in Israelite territory. This was his first time back in the land, and yet he was the governor of Judah, a man on the Persian payroll. He was overseeing this construction project in the province beyond the river, as the Persians called it. But more important than his name or his title, even where he had been born, is the detail that God includes in verse 23. Zerubbabel, he says, God's servant was the son of Shealtiel. Now you can chase down the records later and you find that that means that Zerubbabel was the descendant of kings. He was the grandson, to be exact, probably uh, adopted into the family from uh, a brother or, or a nephew. But he was the grandson of Jeconiah, one of the last kings to reign in Judah. And that means that right after the Lord declared a larger blessing for the remnant of the people, he spoke a focused blessing to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the descendant of kings in the line of David. And what he says is rather amazing. Verses 21 and 22, God uh, promises, he declares again that he's about to shake creation just as he mentioned earlier in chapter 2. The Lord can overturn kingdoms and armies more easily than a child can knock over a tower constructed out of wooden blocks. And he's going to overthrow horses and chariots. He's going to throw their riders into confusion. You recognize all that traditional language. It's pointing to God's victories of the past. God wants Zerubbabel to know exactly who it is that is making this declaration to him. The God of the Red Sea crossing is speaking. The God of drowned Egyptians and Gideon's victory is making a promise. The God who turned Sodom and Gomorrah into an archaeological guessing game is speaking into time and history. And that same God, he says, will once again upset world orders, and he's going to establish his own purposes among the peoples of the earth. And in verse 23, he says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. That is a specific promise. The Lord does not say that he's going to make Zerubbabel into a king. 
He does not say that he is going to make him the leader of armies. He does not say that he's going to bless him with unimaginable riches. God says he's going to make him a signet ring. You know, like the the special authenticating mark that belonged to every king in the ancient world. Whatever decree was sealed with the king's signet was a declaration that carried the weight of royalty. The signet for each monarch, each ruler was unique and hand-selected and it was kept close to the king at all possible times. And the Lord is saying to Zerubbabel that he is going to place on him his very own stamp of approval. He's going to make him his prized possession. And that would be wonderful if that was all that the Lord was promising to Zerubbabel. But there's more. Turn with me to Jeremiah, chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22, we're going to begin reading in verse 24, and there we're going to see a very different promise to a very different ruler. Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 24, this is a message to Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the very same Jeconiah who is the grandfather of Zerubbabel, and to him the Lord says something very different. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But the land to which they long to return, there they shall not return. What does it mean? It means that with Zerubbabel, the Lord is reinstating his previous promise. It means that the exile to Babylon was an interruption not only of the people living in the land, but of God's promise to the line of David. To raise up a man to sit on his throne to always occupy the kingdom of Israel. It was an interruption. But it also means that even the sins of the kings of Judah could not overcome God's covenantal promises to raise up a shepherd king of his own choosing. God is declaring to Zerubbabel that on some future day, when all of his promises are fulfilled, all people will look back to him and they will recognize God's stamp of approval. Zerubbabel will be proof that God was at work when humanity could not solve its own problems of sin and uncleanness. And actually, that is exactly what the world knows of Zerubbabel today. That is why we read his name every time we turn to the very first page of the New Testament. Because it's there. In Matthew's genealogy, the very first name after the exile to Babylon, those ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's there as a landmark of God's recommitment to upset nations and to overturn peoples and to establish the kingdom of Christ that cannot be shaken. And Zerubbabel is there as a reminder of what Haggai was teaching us. The God's covenant blessings always flow to contaminated people 
through a servant that the Lord chooses for himself. Or in other words, we love because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for this time in your prophets. We pray that your word would be sweet to us, that you would make Christ Jesus both our treasure and our pleasure, that you would cause us to trust in him and to know him and to love him, the servant whom you have sent and in whom all of your promises are yes and amen for a people who couldn't even begin to deserve your mercy. Show us that same truth at your table, we pray. Help us to trust not in the outward signs, but in the one they proclaim to us, we pray in Jesus' name.